You are listening to the Alouette's Flight Deck, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. All right, folks, we've been clear for takeoff. Welcome to the Alouette's Flight Deck, podcast dedicated to Montreal Alouette's football. I am Tim Capper, along with Cliffy Day. Hey, bud, staying healthy? As healthy as one can be in these uh, these crazy times. Yeah. Uh, I, I still need to get uh, get myself motivated to do uh, get back to doing my workouts, but uh, it, it's going to come. It's funny. I, I keep thinking, okay, I've got lots of time. And there's also part of me is like, well, who am I looking good for? Because I'm here by myself. <laughs> it's like, like, <laughs> like I, I can't grow a beard for to save my life, but I just haven't shaved yet. And, and then I'm like, I don't care, you know, working from home and whatnot. But, but still, um, I, I think it's funny, uh, you know, considering that it's, you know, we hope everybody is safe at home. Uh, we want everybody to be safe. Uh, not only across the Montreal and the, and Canada, but obviously our, our brethren over at the, uh, over at the CFL Pod Network, um, but for this, you know, this is actually a perfect episode, considering that um, you know we are at a, a a milestone in a way for us. It's episode one thirteen, and and you had you had an idea of what you wanted to do, and I think people may understand where we're going with this. But for those who don't, what is episode one thirteen going to be specifically about? Well, I mean, 113. When you think of the number 13 and the Montreal Alouettes, there's only one possible name that comes to mind, and that is the legendary, the GOAT, if you will, Anthony Calvillo. We were very fortunate to be able to have him join us. Uh, I was going to say sit down and join us, but obviously that's not happening. But, it's, but we were very fortunate to get uh, Anthony on the phone and uh, and chat with him a little bit about his career, uh, about some of the highlights uh, that have gone on in that legendary career of his. And I, I tell you, Tim, we, we, we spoke with him for a good long time, and we probably could have talked for hours with him. It was, it was just such a great, great chat. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Uh... Uh, you know, if, well, if we, you know, once you guys hear the interview, you'll understand what we're talking about because, you know, we did scratch the surface. We got through most of his career, but, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's the funny things that, that occur during an interview where, um, you, you know, where you know that you just completely lose track of time. So, uh, without further ado, Anthony Calvillo. And with us, this special episode of the flight deck is a gentleman who we, come on, you, you know, Steve, fellow football. This gentleman is a living legend. He is the GOAT. He is formerly of the Alouettes, and he's also, hey, he happens to be a Hall of Famer, too. Anthony Cavillo. Hey, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Uh, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, it, it, it's so much in your in your career that we want to talk about, but it's there, I'm sure there's many stories that we would love to hear from you. But uh, I, think, I think probably one of the things that... Um, that fans may want to know who, who didn't follow your career from the very beginning is we want to just at least touch on a little bit on your, on your career with, uh, with the Las Vegas posse, uh, as short as it was, but, um, obviously it was what got you into the CFL and it got you where you were today. Um, what, when you first were approached about going and playing pro football and it happened to be, the Canadian League, but yet it was in Las Vegas. What what were your initial thoughts on that? Well, uh, when when I came out of university at Utah State, um, I, I didn't know about the Canadian Football League. So, you know, I knew about the National Football League, and I knew that 
they were not interested in me. And, and I was okay with that because I never had a, uh, you know, a, a goal or a dream of, of, of becoming this, uh, this quarterback in the National Football League. So, you know, I was very at ease of, of my decision to go into coaching and teaching back where I grew up. That was my, my plan. And then, you know, I started hearing about these other leagues. There were some leagues in Europe. And then um, I started hearing about the Canadian Football League. And I was very fortunate because I had actually two coaches uh, that were with me, Jim Zorn um, and Charlie Weatherby, that were coaches for me there at Utah State that started to inform me about this other league uh, up in Canada. So that's when I inquired. And then uh, and then I found out that, of course, there's this amazing league that's been around for uh, for I don't know how many decades at that particular time. And, and they were also talking about expanding into the U.S. Uh, with one team, of course, being in, in there in, in Las Vegas. But even before that, I went to... I went to an open tryout uh, for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Southern California. There was a, I don't know, about six of us that drove down from Utah State. Uh, we stayed at my mom's place, and then we went and tried out for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And, of course, I didn't get signed by them, but they actually started to tell me, like, listen, you should find out if somebody has your rights. And that was a foreign concept to me. Like, what do you mean if somebody has my rights? <laughs> and that's when I found out uh, by uh, once I acquired uh, about the league, I got an agent. And then my agent informed me that the, the team in Las Vegas has my rights. And basically he said that I cannot sign with any other team except this team in Las Vegas. And I was like, sure, let's do it. And, and that's how I kind of found out about the CFL. And, and that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. Was it, was it easy getting used to the game? Obviously, for those who watch the NFL and have watched the CFL too, you know, there are quite a few differences when it comes to not necessarily just the end zones, but also the width and the length of the, of the field itself. Um, was it something that you had that you got used to quite easily or was it something that you, it took you a little bit while just to get used to? Um, I think, uh, one was the size of the field. That thing, that was, that was the biggest challenge. Like all the motion and even the extra guy being on the field was not, was not a huge issue. Uh, it was more the size in the field. And then it was also the ball. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the ball was, uh, uh, I think it was called the, the company was Spalding. And it was, uh, it wasn't, it was very difficult for me to, to throw this ball. Um, but everything else was still football. It was still completing passes. It was still scoring touchdowns, handing the ball off and so forth like that. But it was just the size of the field. Cause you know, as a young quarterback, you think you have this strong arm and all of a sudden you're throwing this, this field out that, that you normally throw, but now the ball's in the air for a lot longer and these DBs are a lot faster and the mm -hmm. ball will go the other way. So I think that was probably my, my biggest adjustment is getting used to those two things, the size of the field and, and the ball that we were actually using, which was, like I said, Spalding. Yeah, I think it was, I think that's where the CFL got the at one for one year. They started with the Ara balls or bigger, you know, branding type of thing <laughs> that one year. So it's, um, and, and for most, for those who don't, it, it, there is a slight difference. I think it's not as big as a, a slight, as big a difference as it was back then. I think there's been a, they're, they're sort of similar now to the, to the NFL ball, but, um, I, it, we've seen and heard different things about the, when it comes to Las Vegas, Anthony, and, and we're just curious to know, I mean, it's, you know, we, everybody has heard about the last home game for, in their career, in their inner history, where it had to be moved to, to Edmonton and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. what, what thing will you, did you not miss the most about Las Vegas when you were, uh, when you went to Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably say the heat. It was so hot out there. Um, 
You know, when we when we started camp, um, it was of course I want to say sometime in May, mm-hmm. but we actually our June we had an extra two weeks of camp because we were uh, of course an expansion team, so we got some extra time. And and I remember specifically, you know, we had these uh, these numbers that kind of told you what period it was. So you went from number period one all the way up to period twenty, and yeah. it was like between it was like ten minutes each for each period, and the guys that started there from day one, um, their bodies got used to the weather, the heat, and they knew how much they had to hydrate themselves. But whenever we brought somebody new in, like somebody that came in like after a week that we'd been there, yeah, like the guys would pass out right between period six and period 10 because their bodies weren't used to the heat and, and everything that came with it. So that's the one thing that stands up for me. It's just the heat that, 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 that was out there during camp. And, and, you know, that's something I don't miss. Yeah. Um, I, I, at the time I have to at least ask, cause it's been about almost 30 years I think, since this happened. Do you remember the Oak Canada being sung, sung like Oak, Oak Christmas tree for the very first, I think it was the very first home game in Vegas in, in Vegas history. Do you remember that? Um, well, I, I do remember it. Yeah. Um, but at the time when it was occurring, um, I didn't realize that, you know, what the mistake was, what, what, what was going on. <laughs> it was more after the game and then the newspapers. And then you start to hear, uh, what it should, what it should have sounded like and yeah. what it was then and what it was sung during, during the game. So, uh, I know it was, it was a big deal and it, it, it should have been a big deal, but I think that gentleman, you know, I think he came up to Canada yes. and, and sung quite a few national anthems mm-hmm. after that and hit some, some talk shows as well. So I think it worked out for him. But, yeah, it was one of those, one of those I think, embarrassing things uh, for, for, for uh, our football team. But, again, at the time, I didn't realize what was going on. Yeah, and, and obviously with the Internet, too, Anthony, everything, every, anybody can go back and watch this thing because I think it's when people talk about the most cringeworthy moments in CFL history, this is one of them. You know, you could have, you know, they could talk about the 13th man. How, how cringeworthy is that? I mean, it's, but it's, they look back and this, this thing seems to be the, at the top of their list. So um, That's right. All right, uh, Anthony. With this, uh, I guess now you can call the failed experiment of uh, CFL USA. Uh, you take a look at what happened uh, like in the coming years. We've seen the XFL come not once but twice, and we've also had the Alliance of American Football. Do you think nowadays, uh, just with everything that's been going on in that, uh, and just based on your own experiences in playing in the United States, do you think if the CFL were to entertain the idea again of expanding to the United States, do you think it would work, or do you think it would just fall to the wayside yet again, like these other leagues? Um, you know what, I, the only team that really had success, uh, at the gates and on the field, of course, was Baltimore and they had quite, uh, the fans that would come out there and support them. And what's crazy, they still go to all the great cups as well. There's a fan club that, that goes and, and travels around and, and always talks about the, the, the Baltimore Stallions. But, um, I, I just don't, I don't think it, it would work in my, my personal opinion. You know, I, I think, that uh, what you just talked about, all these leagues that have popped up and, you know, whether it's in the spring, but mm-hmm. the CFL course starts in the summer into the fall. And then now you're competing against not, also, not only the National Football League, but college football and also high school football. Because in a lot of states, high school football is so big. Um, you know, maybe, maybe if it's maybe if it's a city that, you know, borders uh, Canada, where there's a lot of uh, fans that maybe that are familiar and there's a, 
a good uh, uh, fan base. Maybe it might happen or be successful there, but uh, I think it's it's very it's going to be very very challenging if they ever do that again. Hmm. And I also noticed that uh, on that coaching staff, with uh, in addition to head coach Ron Meyer, you also had Jeff Reinbold in the uh, in the coaching ranks. And now you see the success that he's had in the league. Uh, have you and Jeff ever talked about like those times in Las Vegas and where you guys are now? Oh yeah, I mean over the years we of course you know he became a head coach in Winnipeg and and you know coached in Vancouver and he was actually uh, a, a coach here in uh, I think 2012 uh, as our defensive coordinator and um, you know we we both got a, a very close mutual friend a guy named David Maeva who played uh, in Las Vegas that was from Hawaii and and we became very good friends and I know um, you know they spent some time together too so I believe that. Uh, that uh, Coach Reinbold might have been coaching in Hawaii as well. So, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about, uh, you know, when we see each other about those those times, but uh, he, he is one smart, intelligent coach. We, we know you went to, obviously, from, from Vegas after they folded, you went to Hamilton. Um, I think it's funny, it, from Hamilton to, to Montreal, and, and we've seen over the past couple of years when it's come to these big, you know, these big trades and stuff like that, where, you know, like, like I'll say, you know, Johnny football was traded from, from Hamilton to Montreal and, and the Alouettes have always had seemed to have a, a, a history when it comes to these big name quarterbacks uh, from the U S that, that don't seem to do very well. I mean, I guess big name guys that, that have come, but um, when you look at your, your, you, you look back at the Hamilton Tiger Cats and and getting, I guess you could say, a, a new lease on life because, uh, especially in the league, um, how do you reflect on your time in Hamilton? Uh, it was a very challenging, difficult time. Um, you know, we weren't successful. Um, I wasn't playing um, a very consistent uh, uh, ball at that particular time, and and really it was my fault when I look back at it. Um, I was a very I was young. Uh, I was stubborn. Um, I had an attitude. I thought I had all the answers. And, you know, I just came from Vegas where, you know, I started as a 21-year-old rookie. So I just felt that, uh, that you know, I really didn't want to be mentored. And, you know, I had some great quarterbacks there that, that I could have learned from, but I just never was open enough, opened up enough to do that. Like with Mike Kerrigan, Steve Taylor, uh, Matt Dunnigan. I mean, these are guys that I really could have learned from, but you know, I kind of just did my own thing, and of mm-hmm. course, that wasn't it wasn't good enough. So, when I when I got released, I had to do a lot of soul searching because you know I, I knew that you know after four years, um, you know that's the almost the average for any professional athlete, whether it's in the NFL or CFL. After four years, if you don't do something spectacular or, or, or do something to keep you around, that your career your career is usually over. And I was very fortunate that I had another opportunity when. When Jim Pop came and called and asked me to come, if I wanted to come in, into Montreal, and and I wanted to for two reasons. One is they were a winning organization because up to that point in my career, uh, I wasn't involved uh, with a winning organization that had a winning record, and uh, and then they had an experienced quarterback in Tracy Ham who who I felt that I wanted to learn from, and he was a a veteran, he was a championship quarterback. And I felt this was just the right place for me to to finally take a step back and be open minded and finally get a chance to learn from somebody. What do you think tur- turned your uh, turned you around when it comes to your your thinking when it comes to you know being a football player and a quarterback? I mean, was it anybody in particular? Was it just the experience itself on how you were treated in Montreal? What what where where did Anthony Cavalier finally turn the corner in in his in in your own mind? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I always, uh, I mentioned Jim Zorn and, uh, you know, he was somebody that I was always in contact with and, you know, and, you know, he would give me advice on what I shouldn't and should not do. And, and, you know, the one thing that always stood out to me was, you know, I got to be open-minded. I got to be able to learn from somebody and, 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 and not have this attitude that, you know, that I know everything. So I just knew deep in my heart that if I had another bad year, that my career was going to be over. And I felt that I, up to this point in my professional career, uh, I proved to myself that I could not do this on my own, that I needed to be open-minded and learn from somebody. And, uh, you know, I always, I always, you know, thank Tracy about this. And the one thing he said to me that, that, that always stood out was, you know, Anthony, he goes, yeah, I taught you, but you were, you were willing to listen mm-hmm. where there's a lot of young quarterbacks who are not. And I was one of those young quarterbacks in Hamilton, but when I got to Montreal, that's when things change. So I was just very fortunate that Tracy was willing to kind of show me the ropes, but he said that's, that's what he learned when he was in Edmonton, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with Damon Allen, um, Matt Dunnigan, um, and wherever he went, he just, people taught him the game. He listened and he just felt that it was his responsibility to do the same thing. As long as the young guy that was behind him was willing to listen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cliff. Now, you spent about two years basically sitting under the learning tree of Tracy Hamm in Montreal. Basically, uh, yeah, for the first two seasons, essentially, you were the backup. And I want to know, at what point did you feel comfortable enough to say, okay, I've got this, I'm I'm ready to lead this football team? Well, the first year uh, in 98, um, that year uh, I actually started six games, and I was four and two as a starter. And... And I came off the bench about five other games because, of course, Tracy was was getting banged up, and he was closer to the end of his career. So I felt that year that I was finally, you know, trying to get my feet back into the game. But the one thing I wanted to do, and I think every quarterback needs to have this, is have the trust of the locker room, have the trust of the organization, and that's that was my main focus. So in 1999, uh, that year I started nine games, and I was seven and two as a starter. And then came off the bench a few other games um, to replace Tracy. So I just remember thinking to myself, man, if I play, if I started nine games and now was seven and two, you know, what can I do if I, you know, if I start eighteen games? So in those two years, I, I felt that I was starting to one build up my confidence and two starting to, you know, slowly gain the uh, gain the trust of the locker room. But ultimately, you know, I needed to gain the trust of the organization. So after that, that year in 1999, uh, Tracy retired and they, they, they invested in me to take the team over. And, and that was the year 2000 was a very important year for myself because the last time that I was, uh, you know, the main guy going into a season was in, was in 1997 in Hamilton and, and we went two and 16 that year. So, so this was very, very important year for, for my growth as a quarterback. Cause you know, the team believed in me, the players believed in me, but I still got to, I still had to go out there and consistently do it. And so that year in 2000 was a very important year for me personally, uh, just to establish myself. All right. And year 2000, of course, uh, Alouettes make it all the way to the great cup. Uh, come up just a little bit short. Uh, well, how did that experience uh, sort of, I guess, strengthen your resolve to to do better and be better? Like, what did you take away from not just that game, but also that season that you just said, okay, what do I have to do to reach that next level to finally become not just getting to the dance, but finally winning the whole thing? 
Well, that's just it, right? So, you know, going back, I think we were 12-6 and six in the regular season. And, of course, I think we played Winnipeg in the playoff game and, and then went to the championship game to, to play BC. And and um, and that whole year, you know, as a quarterback, you're, you know, your main goal is to be consistent and to be a championship quarterback. And, and I felt that uh, I was very close. I was knocking on the door. And, and uh, I realized, man, this is, this is not easy. Um, and I just felt that I, I had to continue to, to grow and to learn. And the biggest challenge that every quarterback and every team has is, is to be consistent. And, and that was my main focus is to be consistent. So, you know, I could give our team the best chance to win. So I took a lot out of that year, but I did realize that, you know, the gray cut weeks are just, they're not normal. Uh, your whole schedule is thrown off with, uh, you know, practice time, media, award show, um, all the hype that's involved in that in that particular week. So it was a great learn experience for me, and, and to be and to be honest with our with our whole entire team. All right, and now finally going into uh, the two, the 2002 season, where you do finally get that elusive Grey Cup. Uh, was it what was the one factor that you felt that kind of put you over the top? Because you had you had some great players surrounding you. You had a, a coach that was, you know, is again a legend, a Hall of Famer in Don Matthews. Uh, you have Jim Pop, who believes in you and has believed in you pretty much from day one. What was the one thing you would say was finally that that missing piece that finally said, "Okay, now I am officially not just a Grey Cup participant, but now a Grey Cup champion." Well, I, I think it started uh, in the off season in two thousand two because that's when, like you mentioned, we hired Don Matthews and. Um, and to be honest with you, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if he was going to release me or say, Anthony, we're going to bring other guys in to compete against you. But the first meeting I sat down with him at the Big O, um, he basically said, Anthony, because listen, we're going to we're going to change this offense. We're going to we're going to build it around you. Uh, we're going to bring in the coaches. We're going to bring in the talent, and you're going to go out there and lead us. So that I'm always going to remember because he kind of set the tone for for my attitude, my confidence uh, going into that 2000 season, that 2002 season, like you said, we were stacked. We were talented. Uh, we had guys uh, on the offense and defensive side of the ball. And, 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 and as you know, you know, Don just had this, this presence about him that, you know, that you were going to go out there and win with him uh, leading you. So, you know, we, we were finally able to uh, capture that first championship there in 2002 and, and, you know, that's to me, it's one of the most memorable uh, memories I'm ever going to have because it was the first championship and, and you know, coming back to Montreal and, and the city throwing that amazing yeah. parade that they, they had for us. That's something I'm never going to forget going down St. Catherine and seeing all the, you know, thousands of fans lined up in the freezing cold to, to celebrate this championship with us. What was the, uh, when you did win the Grey Cup, Anthony, um, what, what, what's one of the things that was said to you guys uh, in the locker room by the coaching staff that may have not been heard by the media or actually been promoted, you know, talked about all that much? Anything in particular that you'll take away from that uh, from that first ever win? Um, I, I, actually, I can't recall, to be honest with you. I know Don, uh, Coach Matthews, always, you know, he always had a few words to say before games, and he was very consistent uh, about, uh, about his sayings, whether we were on the road or we're at home. Um, but it wasn't one thing that, you know, that, that, that stood out that, that got us going, uh, going into that game that I can recall. And, uh, uh, people, I'm sure people 
will want to know. I mean, it, how was it holding that that trophy for the very first time? Because I've I've had a chance to hold the trophy. I know it's very heavy. But uh, for for yourself, what what was your what was your reaction when you picked that thing up for the very first time? Well, I mean, you you know, when I first came into the league in '94, you know, you always watch the Grey Cup games, and, and and what do you see? You see a stage. You see all the players celebrating. You see all this confetti of the team's color who that just won. And then you see all these people trying to get this gray cup to take pictures and, and drink out of it and put their lips on it and, and just celebrate with it. So that's the one thing I wanted to do. I wanted to, to, to have that memory as well of doing all the above that I just mentioned. So, um, you know, we have some great photos and memories of that, but, um, you know, touching that thing officially for the first time, after winning is uh is just something that's that of course we're going to cherish and we definitely got the photos to go back and look at and, and have great memories of that yeah for sure no no does anthony calvio have any crazy gray cup stories like stories with the gray cup <laughs> <laughs> let's see um i remember uh we um i remember what in, in 2002 um uh, when we got back and usually a player, you get to take the trophy for 24 hours. And I remember we had to, we had to sign a contract. Basically if we lose it or if it gets damaged that we were responsible for it. And I don't remember what the cost was, but I remember we had to sign this thing. And I remember we went out and we took it out and then I came home and uh, went to bed. And then uh, my wife, she's like, where's the gray cup? I'm like, it's in the living room. She's like, no, go get it and bring it in here. Cause that thing gets stolen. We're in trouble. <laughs> um, so we had to bring that thing in the room and, and make sure it was nice and close. So we wouldn't lose it. But uh, you know, I, I, there's, again, there's probably so many stories that people could share, but that one, that one. And right now just pops in my head just because, you know, we didn't want to have to be responsible for paying this thing if we if we lost it or damaged it. I don't blame you. <laughs> wow, no, that that's incredible. Like the the Grey Cup, if it could talk, can say yes. I've been in the bedroom of Anthony Calvillo. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got great pictures with. I mean, even later on when we won in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like you know, first we then we had our kids and we were able to take pictures with it and. You know, do some some fun stuff with, with it, with different things inside the Grey Cup. But that, everybody has those those memories. So those that those uh, that Grey Cup's been around a lot of different places. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, we can if we forward to, to two thousand and four. I mean, at first, I mean, the Alouettes they 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 really dominated the decade. Um, before I talk, ask you about two thousand four. During that entire time, where I would have called the Alouettes, they were very similar to the Atlanta Braves, where they would be very dominant within the playoffs itself, but wouldn't necessarily get, you know, get to the championship and win the championship at, at any of that time. I mean, so people know what type of player you are. I mean, I'm sure you're very meticulous in the, in when it comes to learning the plays and your demeanor on game day. But for that period of time where the Alouettes were just so dominant, did at any point, did you um, just feel that, you know, nobody could beat you? You know, did you, uh, what am I trying to say? You, did you get cocky when it came to how well the team was playing, that type of thing, or is that just part of what it should be for for any player in football? Just to so you are, uh, you know, as uh, you know, as dominant that you were. Um, well, um, let's see. With Don Matthews, Don Matthews, like the team that we had with him, um, 
you know, Don, as long as you showed up on game day, he, he didn't, and you played up to your potential, mm. you know, there wasn't a lot of discipline that was involved in, in, in our team at that particular time. So we fed off of that and, and we would go out there and, and when you're winning, you just, you expect to win. Uh, we had the talent to do it. Um, and we went out there and performed and, 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 and won a lot of games and, and like you mentioned, like we 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 lost some great cups, um, but I think the biggest thing is we just felt that when we when we stepped on the field, that you know it was going to be very challenging to beat us, and if all things being equal, we should come up on top uh, based on our preparation, our talent. But you know we were just feeding off, especially with Don, off of his off of his confidence and how he just carried the team and. Yeah. And we just felt that when we stepped on the field that we were gonna we were gonna go out there and win. It's such a good 2004 season. I mean, the team was 14 and four, and I remember sitting at the Big O for the for the you know for the Eastern final. And you know, unfortunately for you, you 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 got hurt during the game. You weren't you didn't actually you know you didn't advance to the to the Grey Cup. Um, what what were you feeling during that game, Anthony? Especially after you got hurt, because it's you know, as far as I know, it's not really you know, it's the first time that you've really been some a serious injury like that where it took you out of a game. But what what were your your thoughts on on getting hurt during the uh, the uh, two thousand and four Eastern Conference Final? Um, yeah, it was it was really early in the second half. Um, I got I got sacked, and I knew right away something happened to my shoulder because it was just. It was just so much pain. So I remember going into the locker room with the doctors and the trainers, and you know they're they're examining me, and then they determined that I had a, a separation, either a first degree or second degree separation. I really couldn't lift my my arm up anymore, and there was discussion about you know freezing my shoulder uh, to potentially go back in there. And then I agreed. I go let's let's freeze it and, and see and see uh, how it feels. And so they shot it up. They froze it, but. I remember trying to throw and I couldn't, I couldn't feel my arm. I, mm. I couldn't, it, it was still hurting a bit, but I couldn't, you know, do a full motion the way I wanted to do. Uh, and I was very nervous that, um, that there's a chance of, uh, you know, with, with more damage if I go out there and get hurt uh, again. So um, all those factors were coming into my head, you know, do I go back and play? But the biggest thing was the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't feel my arm throwing the ball and to me it didn't make sense. Right. to go back into the game. So it was very difficult to come back on the sideline and, 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 and watch our team go out there and, and not be able to pull to pull through. But believe me, I was cheering for, for Ted White, the quarterback, and the mm-hmm. rest of our team at that particular time. But it's always tough when you're injured and you can't go back in the game, uh, you know, whether it's the first game, the Eastern Final, uh, Eastern Final or any type of playoff game. Is that the first time that you had been offered a shot to because of an injury itself during your career? I mean, whether it be when when you're a kid in college or or whatever it was, was that the first time that they had offered that to you to do something like that? Offer? Um, well, meaning meaning saying here, Anthony, Anthony, we know you're hurt. Uh, we here's you. You have the option. You either sit or we can try this, and you might be able to go back yeah. and play. Um. I'm trying to think. I remember in, in college, I had an issue with my right thumb, and I had to, I, that thing. I had to get it taped all the time. There was so much treatment on that, and I think I might have got it shot up once okay. because I just there was just so much pain. Um, I also uh, early on in my career, I bruised, I bruised some ribs, and then the following week, um, they were still really sore, and I had them shot up so uh, I could play. Um, 
but I think that was probably the the few times that that it occurred where um, where I got uh, shot up for an injury. So with your, by the way, you, since you, you brought it up, you're talking about the ribs. Were you also wearing a flak jacket for that, even though they had shot you up? Were you still wearing one, or are you, were you just in your normal gear? Um, the funny thing is I've always worn rib protectors, always. Okay. Tracy Ham never, ever, ever wore rib protectors when I was playing with them in Montreal. And I decided one game, I think it was either 98 or 99, I'm like, I'm not going to wear them. I'm, I'm backing up Tracy. I feel it's pretty good. And then what happens, Tracy gets hurt. I have to go in, no rib pads. We're, we're playing against Hamilton. And then that's when I bruise my ribs. Okay. So the Ugh. next game, I put my rib pads back on. I said, never, ever again <laughs> am I gonna, <laughs> am I not going to wear these things. So, so yes, yeah, so I, I did have them shot up with the rib pads oh, that, okay. that should have been there the week before. For 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 the, for the fans who don't know, are, are is it comfortable to have your your rib protection on? Or because uh, I'll be honest with you, Anthony, I've never worn uh, any type of football equipment. So is it is it does it hinder you, or you've been wearing it so long that it it's just something that it came like second nature? I think that's it. Like uh, I, I would wear them. Like one thing with uh, with Don uh, Matthews, he you know there was times a lot of times where we didn't practice with 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 pads just with our helmets but he always wanted the quarterbacks to wear their shoulder pads when i wore my gear was always with my rib pads as well so uh, it's become it was second nature for me and i remember later on in my career uh, ronnie james our equipment manager he's like anthony he goes your shoulders are outdated um you know they're gonna expire so you have to wear new ones i'm like i'm not wearing new ones i go send them back to the company get them refurbished and i'm wearing the exact same ones because it was just a certain comfort level. Because right. I tried the new ones that they had, and it just felt uncomfortable. So he did me the favor, sent them back to the company. They refurbished them, and I was able to continue wearing the exact same ones. And it was just a comfort level that I had with this particular shoulder pad. It, was, it the same, you, was it the same thing for your helmet, too? Because obviously with all these changes these days when it comes to safety with helmets and stuff like that, is it? Did you have your helmet throughout your entire pro career, the same helmet, and they just refurbished it, or did you end up having to change it? <laughs> no, they, they, they. I think one year they changed it, uh, but I had worn it during the off season to make sure I felt comfortable with it. Okay. Because, uh, like you said, there's there's this new technology that's coming up. So, um, so I did I did adjust my helmet for for you know for many reasons you know right. just to protect the head. Okay, Cliff. All right, all right. Let's uh, let's go ahead to uh, 2005. The 2005 Grey Cup is memorable for so many reasons. Uh, going into overtime uh, with that game and coming up short. Uh, talk to us about the overtime period. Like, it, 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 I think it'd been a, a long time since we had an overtime game in the Grey Cup. So, fifty years. Fifty years. Yeah. So, just share some of your thoughts of the whole overtime experience in a Grey Cup game. Oh shoot! I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure. I think I think they might have scored first. I'm not sure if it's just the right order, but I do remember um, uh, us getting on the field, and I think I'm not sure if we ran the ball or threw the ball, but it was second down and long, and and then the second play we called, and then it was like a pass down the sideline to Dave Stalla where we scored a touchdown. Um, I think that was one of the touchdowns, and then. From what else that I can remember is, I think it was pretty much one of the, like the last drive um, where we were going down, and um, let's see what happened. There was a couple of things. I think we got sacked. We're backed up. 
I think there was a, a, a tense or a time where I actually I threw the ball. The ball got tipped. It came back to me, and I was going to start running. And then all of a sudden, I see Kerry Watkins in the back of the end zone, and I'm like, shit, he's open. I got to throw it. And then once I let it go, I realized, man, that's a double pass. So that backed us up even more. And and then I remember the last play of the game. I remember being in the huddle, uh, telling everybody, listen, whoever catches the ball, uh, if you're not in the end zone, try to fumble it or try to kick it towards the end zone. And everybody tried to go follow. Maybe we could jump on it. And I remember dropping back. I had a scramble. And I'm running towards the sideline. I'm like, man, I can't run out of bounds. And I remember I kicked the ball. Uh, and nothing transpired from that. But I remember my family and friends saying, what the hell were you thinking? Why were you kicking the ball there at the end of the game? And, and I just remember being in the huddle telling the guys, listen, no matter what, we cannot have this ball in our hands when we're going down or out of bounds. So I decided to kick the ball to give us a chance. But yeah, but if you look at it, you're probably thinking, like I said, my family and friends are like, what the heck were you thinking? I then I had to explain to them what I just explained to you. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what it's going to be like for uh, uh, Americans to watch our game, just with some of the, the crazy rules and uh, all the little quirks about it. So it's, and again, like you as a player too, like you, you're, you're used to it, but at the same time, like, as you said, like, especially in a, a championship game, like people are like, what, what are you doing? And then, yeah, that's it's, right. it's just, that's part of the, uh, the, uh, the fun of the Canadian football league, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. All right. So, so let's, let's fast forward a little bit. And, uh, now 2008 comes new head coach, Mark Tressman. The guy is, uh, what can I say? What, what can you say about Mark Tressman about uh, as far as his, the way he leads and just everything that like, what did you know about him before he became the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes? Um, I, I didn't know anything about him. Um, you know, once they hired him, uh, then you started seeing articles about his history and where he's been and what he was able to accomplish. So I didn't know anything about him when, when we, uh, when we, uh, when he became our head coach. And also to that year was also kind of pivotal because you had also made some personal decisions in your life to start thinking a little more healthy as far as your, uh, your training, your diet, exercise regimen. Uh, and it breathed new life into you T- take us through that a little bit. Um, well, uh, it, it really started going into the 2009 season. There, there was some in 2008, but not as much of the transformation that I made going into the 2009 season. The 2008 uh, was uh, the year after uh, my wife got sick, so we were starting to get a little bit more aware of, of, of eating healthier and thinking more about taking care of uh, our body as much as we can. Um, but it was really the, going into the 2009 season where I really changed everything. You know, after that Great Cup loss, there that you mentioned in 2008, um, it was kind of like it was kind of the same feeling when I got released from Hamilton. Um, there, uh, thinking, man, I got to do something different. I got to do something that's going to challenge myself because up to that point, I didn't have a personal trainer. I didn't have a nutritionist. Uh, uh, nut- oh, I can't even speak right now. Uh, <laughs> nutritionist. Um, I basically was doing everything on my own. Um, so after that year was over, after 2008, after we lost the championship, uh, I got in contact uh, with a few people to say, listen, I need some help. I, I need you to, to help me get past this hump. Uh, what is it going to take for me to 
you know, play my best football uh, um, late in the season. And, and that's where it started. So uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Scott Suter, uh, he became uh, the, my 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 main guy that basically said, this is what we're going to do. Uh, this is how you're going to train now. This is how you're going to eat. And uh, and that's where it started. So it was really going into that 2009 season where I had, I had to take a step back and realize that I cannot continue to do this on my own because I proved to myself that it's not good enough. Yes, it was good enough to win a lot of games. Yes, it was good enough to, to win one championship. Uh, yes, it was good enough to win uh, a couple MVPs, but it wasn't good enough to win another championship. So I had to think, myself what can i do to challenge myself so that's the direction i went in okay uh well talk about 2009 and we have to talk about the gray cup itself because it's uh, you know it is something that many cfl fans and more particularly i think rider fans will happen to remember <laughs> um <laughs> Just, I, I mean, everybody knows how the game ended with the thirteenth man, et cetera, and, and Damon Duval kicking the kicking the uh, uh, kicking the winning field goal. I remember seeing your reaction on TV when uh, when the Owls, you know, finally clinched it and, and won the Grey Cup. For for you, take us through that thirteenth man. Uh, just take take us through that the whole thing because you know we it's not something that we're able to hear. We don't hear the play calls or anything like that, and. Take us through what you were thinking, you know, when it came to the the whole thirteenth man. I guess we could call it debacles when it comes to the to the riders themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's it's something that you know people are going to be talking about forever. Um, you know, the thirteenth man, and and you know, and I always like to just remind people as well as you know, we look at the game, and you know, I always remind people the last eight minutes of that game where we were down by sixteen. Yeah, yeah. And we were able to get ourselves in that position thanks to our defense, our special teams, and of course the offense. So I always share that part because as much as people talk about the 13th man, there was a lot of things that was occurring in order for us to put ourselves in that position. But once we got ourselves in that position, you know, going to the sideline, uh, you know, all the, you know, pretty much all of us were on our knees holding hands and, and, you know, you see the snap, the hold, the kick, and you're kind of, you're running on the field with anticipation of celebrating, but all of a sudden you see the referee saying no good. And, and to be honest with you, it's kind of like, you know, personally, like my life, my life kind of flashing in front of me because I had done all these things to challenge myself, to put myself in this position to go out there and win. And all of a sudden we lose again. Um, but again, you see all the, the flags, you see the referee, and and then all of a sudden, like, oh, my goodness, we we have another chance. So, you know, we just I repeat the exact same thing, go back to the sideline. And, and this time when we're rushing the field, uh, you know, Damon put it right down the middle. And I think I don't think people give Damon enough credit for that pressure that he was in too, missing that first one and then putting the second one right down the middle. So, you know, once it once it, it occurred and when it was official and we won, um, you know, all I was just thinking about, like, man, finally, here's another one under under our belt. After all those great cup losses before, we finally got a chance to uh, to win another one. And uh, and they're always going to talk about the 13th man, how we got a second chance, and I we did. I mean, there's no ifs and buts about it, but yeah. we did put ourselves in that position, and we were the team that made the least amount of mistakes, and especially the most important one, and that's having, of course, the around amount the right amount of people on the field. 
Do you, no, do you find, I, know you, I know you played the, the writers the next year. I won't just ask this question. I'll let you get, then I'll let you go, Cliff. But it, for as, as a player, um, did it matter that you played Saskatchewan two years in a row? Or for you, it's just a matter of you were in the Great Cup. You're just focused on trying to get another championship. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about these games, right? The main thing is making sure that you try to get yourself in position to play. And then whoever shows up uh, from from the West, you, you got to play. So uh, it didn't matter to me uh, who we're playing. Uh, all I could tell you is this, going into the 2009 season, um we weren't getting, you know, we weren't getting our silent count ready for the game. So I've been in Grey Cups before. It's very neutral when you have two separate teams playing, like not the host team playing, so it's not very loud. So I personally thought that we didn't have to worry about the noise, but I was definitely wrong because all the Saskatchewan fans bought all the tickets to come to that game there in 2009. So in 2010, we definitely worked on the silent count with anticipation of seeing all the green in the stadium because uh, I just would not expect that there in 2009. Yeah. No, one thing I'm curious about Anthony is for that 2009 game, like again, yellow was for 15 and three and going to the the championship. Like they, they were the odds on favorite. Like this should have, in a lot of people's eyes, this should have been a cakewalk. Not, not to take anything away from Saskatchewan, but I mean, like the Yellowists were clearly the more dominant team throughout the regular season and into the playoffs. But the first half of that game, like, you guys just looked very flat and I don't know what, what happened, like what flipped the switch for you guys, but just talk about that first half. Like what, what do you think in your opinion, what, what went wrong exactly where things went the way they did? Well, I mean, you you know, you look back at uh, a lot of our games and we were favored in maybe a few of them and we had dominant teams, but you know, once you get to these games, I mean, you're, you're talking about nerves, you're talking about expectations uh, I don't care if you're in your first year, your fifth year, your 17th year. All that stuff is is you have to manage that. And that first half, I personally did not manage that. Like we we were two and outs. Uh, I think I fumbled the ball early on as well. And and we were very fortunate to be in that game at halftime. We were uh, our defense uh, kept them to uh, uh, them from scoring uh, seven points. It was always three points. So that that gave us that um, that advantage or advantage at least gave us a chance to stay in the game. So um, it all starts with, and personally for myself, I did not play very well uh, in that first half. Um, and again, how do you explain it? It's You call it nerves, you call it whatever you, you want to call it. I just did not play well in that first half. But then once the second half came around, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion in the locker room about, you know, we got to get our act together and a lot of soul searching for myself, like, you know, you're you're a lot better than this. You should get the job done. And, and I just remember the defense saying, "Listen, we're going to go out there and stop them because Saskatchewan got the ball first. Uh, they said, "Listen, offense, we're going to we're going to get them two and out, get you the ball back." And we're like, "Okay, you do that. We're going to get the ball and go out there and score." And and that's you know, you say a lot of things at halftime. Some stuff comes true, some doesn't. But in that case, it did. So that was just part of the momentum that got us going there in that in that second half and. But again, you know, we we were still down by 16 points with eight minutes to go, and mm-hmm. and uh, and we all dug deep and, and and made crucial plays at a crucial time. So uh, why we played horribly in that first half, I can't I can't explain. All I could tell you for myself, I didn't play up to my potential. But you know, we got our act together there in the second half. 
and then the the elation of victory like you you finally get that monkey off your back like you think back to like i know myself as just as a alouettes supporter throughout all this time like i think back to 2003 2005 2006 2008 like just the weight of all of those losses just disappears i imagine for you it had to be a, a, maybe not necessarily the same thing but it had to be a similar feeling am i am i correct in that well it's just more of like uh i think as a professional quarterback uh no matter who you are there's always going to be yeah he's good but so you know, until you won your first championship as a quarterback, yeah, you won your first one, but can you win your second one? And 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 I had to deal with that, um, and our entire team had to deal with that from you know from 2002 all the way, of course, to 2009. And I always think about one person, and that's and that's Jim Pop, and that's why I always give a lot of thanks for Jim Pop because, like you just mentioned, people get frustrated. They are like, you know. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of people saying, listen, Anthony can't do it. You should find another quarterback and give them a chance. But Jim didn't, um, you know, he did bring in a lot of quarterbacks to one day take my job. And I, I always said that they weren't going to take it. They were going to have to go up there and earn it. But I could just imagine how many times Jim was asked that question. Why do you keep on resigning him? Why do you keep doing this? Why don't you go somebody, go after somebody else? But there was just something that that Jim believed in our team with me leading it. So there's so many things that come into that. Uh, but I think about Jim a lot as much as myself. But I think every professional athlete, no matter what you accomplish in this world until you retire, there's always going to be a but to everything that you accomplish. And I accepted that and I just rolled with it. But I was never going to give up no matter what people said about me, whether I could get the job done or not. Obviously, things have changed with social media and stuff like that these days, Anthony. When you, the stuff that you're just talking about, are you the type of person to listen to the media during the season or, or do you just completely block everything out? You try to block it out as much as you can. Um, it's more like after a, a practice or after a game, it's the questions that keep coming up that could, that could irritate you. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are times where you're curious, like, what are they saying about me? What are you saying about me? And you would read an article here and there. But after a while, it's like, enough's enough. I'm not going to deal with this. Like, even my wife, she stopped reading all that stuff because she would get so fired up and frustrated mm-hmm. on, on what, uh, what people were saying about our team or about me. But, you know, we all know this is, this is all part of uh, a professional sports and, and, and we all had, to, we all have to deal, deal with it. But I just can't imagine now um, playing with social media, especially <laughs> when players have Twitter accounts, you know, they, they, you know, they're responding back to fans and it's a constant, like you can't do this, you're crap. And to be there to, you know, look at this, I mean, you got to be mentally strong to deal with it. And, and some players I'm sure don't look at it. There's some players who, who have fun with it and they'll go back and forth with the fans, but it is a different beast now. It really is. Yeah. Uh, since you mentioned it, I, I at least have to ask, and you don't want the, you don't, I don't want you to out the reporter. When was the one time when a reporter asked you the most stupid or annoying question that you were just like, I just got to answer this professionally and just hopefully the scrum will end. Um, I'm just trying to think after games where we lost and it was quite obvious why we lost and they'll be like so so what happened out there you know just a general <laughs> question that's, like that's that pretty much every sports like, interview. <laughs> you know where do i where do i start uh you know what happened out there and 
I think that right now maybe stands out in my mind, but other than that, nothing is popping in my head. Okay. It, oh, I have to ask, were your, were your questions different between the French media and the English media? Um, from what I can recall, um, no. Um, I, I don't remember uh, it being uh, a huge difference uh, between, between the two um, okay. off the top of my head. Okay. Going into, by the way, you head into 2010. You just finished this amazing comeback in, in, you know, in the Grey Cup. And then on top of that, you do basically part two, but on Canada Day, you may have lost the game on Canada Day, but that game in Saskatchewan is one that people will remember, and even me as an Alouettes fan, whether it was a, even though it was a loss, it's still one of the most exciting games. You remember specifically where you were when you were watching that game, and I do. You know, I was, I was sitting in a hotel room in PEI watching the game, and I'm always going to remember that because of the outcome itself. One thing I wanted to ask you on that play, on the two-point, that amazing catch by S.J. Green in overtime for the, on that two-point convert, at any, was he the original receiver you were supposed to go to, or was it supposed to go to somebody else? Um, from what I can remember, he was. Um, but the DB was a lot, I'm not sure if he was a lot tighter than we, than we anticipated, but there was a collision with the DB and I remember dropping back and thinking, okay, I have to let this go soon. Um, cause I like easy, like to anticipate when he was going to come out. So mm-hmm. as I'm throwing it, SJ starts to spin and I'm thinking, Oh shoot. And I remember releasing it and, and putting a little air in it just to give him enough time to see if he could go and get that thing. And but to be honest with you, when I let it go, I thought it was too far. Uh, and then, of course, you, you see the end result, him just laying out in the air with one arm uh, and cradling this thing back into his body. And then and then we had to wait to <laughs> we had to wait for it to get confirmed. So for um, yeah. <laughs> it was a spectacular catch. And I honestly thought I just I, I threw it too early for him to go and get it. That had to be the longest time just waiting for that review to come through and <laughs> yeah, confirm that, yes, he did make the catch. And these, are, and these are the earlier, somewhat earlier days, I say, quote unquote, earlier days of instant replay in the CFL. So it wasn't, it wasn't what we were seeing these days. So um, going in, obviously the, the Owls did amazingly that year, you know, go to the Grey Cup for the second year in a row um, and win for the second year in a row. Um, you know, does it, it's, it's a really weird question saying you're talking about stupid questions coming from the media, but it, does it. Does it ever change winning? How you feel when it comes to winning championships? Do certain ones in your career that you have won, Anthony, mean more than any of the others? Um, no, I, I like you know the first one's always going to be memorable because again it's your first one and you know not just that it but it's just the parade that the city threw for us, um, uh, which was is always going to be a, a striking memory. And even after you won in two thousand nine, I just kept on telling the guys just just wait for this Grey Cup. Uh, a parade when we get back into the city, but mm. you know the the two two thousand nine uh, you know felt like the it felt like the first one all over again just because of of course the history of us losing the ones previous to that and then right. you know two thousand ten was just kind of like iced on the cake like man you know the win back to back this is this is hard you know the last thing to do it I believe was uh, Toronto uh, there in ninety six and ninety seven so it doesn't it doesn't come around too often so. And the fact that it was a third one, uh, you know, for myself uh, late in my career, and and uh, to me it was just at that time just icing on the cake. Yeah. 
Well, obviously, and then 2011, I'll let Cliff bring this up, but 2011 actually was a very big year for you in the CFL when it came to personal records and stuff like that, wasn't it, Cliff? Absolutely. Uh, and to me, Anthony, this, again, you've had certainly numerous accomplishments and milestones in the Canadian Football League, but uh, I, th- I definitely think a lot of Alouettes fans will definitely remember that Thanksgiving game yep. where you broke the all-time passing yards record. And I'll tell you why it was memorable for me just in a little bit, but uh, just take us through like the end of the third quarter. Like, did you think it was actually going to happen that quickly or did you think it was going to happen sooner? Like in your opinion, where did you think it was going to happen when you would actually finally break that record? Um, yeah, I mean, we were, you know, I was trying to, you know, focus as much as I can on, 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 on playing the game. And, um, you know, the, what I didn't like, what they did is they, you know, on the jumbotron, they, they put the, the yardage that yeah. <laughs> I needed to, to break the record. So every time I completed the pass, it kept on going down. And, you know, that was like, okay, it just, as much as you're trying to block this thing out that, you know, that you're getting closer and closer to this thing. Um, and then once we, you know, completed the ball to Jamal and, and, um, and he scored the touchdown, yeah. you know, I wasn't sure I was just more excited that we just scored. And, and it wasn't until once all the players, you know, started, celebrating in the end zone then i look back and then, then I'm, i see they're starting to set up what they're going to do to acknowledge what just had happened and that's where it kind of just sunk in like okay this is this is going on now yeah uh the the, the video that was played uh of all the congratulatory messages from people who is the one that surprised you the most that you actually got a message from um you know at the time it, it, I, it was just i was just in the moment right. um but just the fact that you know i believe it was it was the top five uh, that were on the list. So there wasn't one guy that stood out more than the other. Uh, mm-hmm. There was all people that I respected and watched playing um, either when I was growing up or at the professional level. So there wasn't one person that, that, that stood out like, man, he actually sent me a message. It's, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't look at it that way. As a quarterback and as a player, I understand that you, you reached that, uh, that particular milestone during the game. Um, how do you feel personally feel about when it comes to major records that are broken, the game completely being stopped and possibly, you know, throwing you as a loop because you want it, you're still in your mindset of playing the game. How, how did, how did you feel about them stopping the game and, 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 uh, you know, praising you for the record that you had broken? Well, like you said, you, you've seen it done before when, when certain records were broken and, yeah. and pretty much, baseball, basketball, football. And I remember asking them not to do that uh, just because, uh, again, for me, I just know how I am. Mentally, I I feel that I have to be locked into a game. And I felt that if that occurred, that it was going to get me out of where I normally am mentally during a game. But, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I got overruled on that and uh, (laughs) and then just accepted it. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that – you know, you, you, for me personally, I wish it didn't happen, but it did, but, uh, it's a memory that, you know, we're all, we're all going to share whether we're coaches, teammates, fans. Um, but honestly, looking back at it, I I think it was a a bit of a distraction for our football team. I'm just glad that we were able to win that game. Yeah. Where's that ball right now, by the way? Um, that ball is downstairs, uh, in my living room and we have a little trophy section. So it's sitting there. Um, uh, with the the actual, they they presented me with a a copper uh, trophy with the yardage uh, one yard more uh, at that particular time of uh, of beating the record. So it's 
It's in my living room. That's cool. Awesome. And again, for me, Anthony, the one thing I, I will take away from that game besides the record itself, it was just amazing. Just to be able to say that I was there for that was incredible. And actually, I do actually remember meeting you after the game and being able, just being able to congratulate you was awesome. But the one thing that really stood out above everything else was the fact that after the game, like you, you just set this incredible record. And if, if, it, if anyone had the right to go out and party it up and do all that stuff, it would certainly be you. But the fact that you actually came out, the fans were there, and everybody's cheering for you, and you were just incredibly gracious as far as signing autographs, taking pictures, all this stuff. And then to find out that you go with your teammates down to, I think it's the Welcome Mission Hall, to help serve Thanksgiving dinner, because it was Canadian Thanksgiving. That's so right. The yeah, fact, you're right. The, the fact that you were able to go and, and do this, even after breaking this incredible record, I mean, that just... To, as far as I'm concerned, that, that to me is the one, if, if I can choose just one memory of you as a, as a football player in the Canadian Football League, to me that's it. It's just not only were you a good person on the field, but an even better person off the field. Well, I, that feedback is, is, is very encouraging. I, I, I love hearing stuff about that, just the, the impact that, you know, that we have on people. And, and that tradition of going feeding uh, the homeless on Thanksgiving goes back to back to 2000. I don't know when it goes back, but it goes on many, many years. And it was just a tradition. We always, I love playing on Thanksgiving day because it, it reminded me of, you know, U S Thanksgiving, you know, there is going to be certain teams playing in, in the U S you know, you have the Cowboys, you have Detroit, you know, they were going to be playing those days. And, and for, for, you know, the end of my career, we were always playing on that, on that Monday. And it was always part of our routine. You know, we go out there and we win our game and then we go over to uh, to the Guatemala Mission, and then uh, we, we you know we, we contribute to our community. So uh, that was in the schedule uh, for many years, and you know, and no matter what happened during that game, it was not going to change. So it's just something that uh, it's always one of those things. Like every athlete, I think if they remember where they came from and and the people that that helped them out, that uh, that it should be in our DNA to do as much as we can when we can to go back and help our community. Yeah, I've always said to Anthony, because it's, you know, up until last year, um, you know, the, the Alouettes had had the game for us like for 13 straight years. And then it was like 15 out of the last 16. You know, people need to remember that, uh, that, you know, we're we're not necessarily like the Labor Day classics for Toronto and for Hamilton. For us, Thanksgiving Day, the Thanksgiving Day game and, and going to the Welcome Home Mission, that is our tradition in Montreal. And I was glad, you know, hopefully... You know, if we do play this year, um, that they will still keep that game. But I do know that people need to remember that that is one of the one of the football traditions here in Montreal, and it's 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 something that needs to hopefully that CFL will will recognize for years to come. So, agreed, agreed, hundred percent. Hey, so uh, Grey Cup year. I mean, uh, sorry, the hundredth Grey Cup year. The Alouettes, you know, they did quite well. But I think for for uh, you didn't make it to the Grey Cup. But one thing I wanted to ask you about in particular is that there were really two things that were sort of different for you. Um, not necessarily as a player, but it's because you uh, of what you did as a player, if that makes any sense. Two things that were done for you. First thing yeah, I'm going to ask you about is what was your thought when you found out that you were going to have and you're going to be immortalized by having your face and your uniform on a stamp for Canada Post. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know it's just one of the things you never think about um, at all. Um, you know, um, you, you you hear about you know so many people um, 
who who have been blessed to 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 have something like that to to be remembered. But you know, this was a whole CFL initiative, um, and you know, for for me to represent the Alouettes with also the '77 team, uh, the Ice Bowl team, there was it's 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 a memory that you know we're always going to cherish. And you know, I remember I think we were in Ottawa. And we were at a museum, and then there was a section of, of stamps, like a stamp collection. And I was like, oh, let's go check it out. So I was there with my family, and, and of course, they had the CFL section there as well. So we're kind of going, and I kind of pointed this to my girls. I'm like, check this out, girls. And they look at it, and they're like, oh, you were on a stamp? And I'm like, yeah, you guys were young, and you don't remember that. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just one of those things where it's, it's fun to share with my girls now, just like I'm looking forward to to watching these games, uh, this encore weekend that the uh, the TSN is broadcasting, and yeah. this weekend they're, they're showing a couple of our games. So I'm looking forward to watching with it with my girls because they were pretty young when I played, and it'll be good to to share some memories with them. So at at any point did you actually put the Anthony Calvillo stamp on an Anthony Calvillo letter that you were sending out? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure my wife did. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember doing anything, but I'm sure we probably sent a few outs. Uh, also, in in 2012, uh, another big thing, uh, the CFL started to do these um, uh, these mini documentaries, and they did one for you. For those who who hadn't seen, it's called "The Kid from La Puente." And can you give us a little bit of inside look on when you were pitched about the idea? Did it? Did, were you convinced about it that that you that you wanted to do it? And Tell us about the 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 actual filming of the of the documentary. Um, well, I remember uh, TSN uh, coming up and asking us uh, if I wanted to do this, and um, you know, the first thing was I went and talked to my family to see if mm-hmm. this was something that they were going to be interested um, to talk about. And um, yeah, it took a couple of weeks. Uh, that, you know, I asked them. You know, there's no pressure whatsoever. If you want to do it, great. If not, I, I don't care. Uh, I just want us to feel comfortable uh, of sharing our, our story because, you know, you just don't know, you know, that you know they're going to record for a certain amount of time, but you you don't know what they're going to use and how it's going to, it's going to come out. Right. So uh, there was a big discussion on whether to go forward or not. And, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't get a chance to, to see the final cut until they showed it. So we were very, you know, nervous and anticipating to see how they were going to portray this. But, um, we were all very happy um, uh, how they were portraying our family and what occurred and and and, um, and how it went down. So for us, we were we were very happy about it. Obviously, you have cameras around you all the time from you know being on the field and stuff like that. Was it weird having a camera following you around during the time while shooting the documentary? Um, yeah, I mean, everything, I mean, everything was pretty much set up. So like we knew we were going to be recording on certain days. So right. you know, we would get things ready and talk about things, but. You know, if there was a mistake or if we didn't want to talk about something, then we're like, no, let's just cut that out. So, um, you know, they, they, the, 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 the crew was awesome, you know, filming here at our house, going back to California and doing some filming out there. So, you know, they were very understanding of everything um, that was uh, being said and, and, uh, and very polite about everything as well. Nice. And uh, your, do you, have your girls uh, seen it? Uh, we actually just saw it about two weeks ago. Oh, um, okay. We, uh, we, you know, we, you know, we, we, we've always shared with them, you know, how, you know, we grew up, but we kind of left the domestic violence out of it. So, right. 
Um, we thought they were old enough. They're 14 and 12 now. And now that we're all confined here at home and, and trying to find different things to watch, we, uh, we always said we wanted to watch it with them. And we decided to watch with them uh, a couple weeks ago. So it was, it was, it was nice to, to finally get them to, to know how, you know, how daddy grew up and, and why I do the things that I do now to make sure that, that I'm the best husband and father for them. So it's, uh, Again, it's one of those things where you just you're glad that you were able to do that, and, and now I'm, I'm always happy to to share that with them as well. Yeah. So, so if you're if someone were to a TV executive were to come up and pitch sort of like a reality show for you and your family, is that something you'd consider, or is that like <laughs> no, no thanks? No, no. If, if if we don't have you know too much control over there, I, I don't I don't see myself doing anything like that. <laughs> What 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 are, you, what are you saying, Cliff? I mean, Anthony was in a in a commercial here in in, in town anyway. So I mean, <laughs> well, this is true. This is true. <laughs> Finally, getting the nod for the Hall of Fame, and also to having the number thirteen retired. I mean, these are things that happened almost. I don't want to say immediately because obviously there's protocols in there, but uh, just to you, like what. What is it when you think about the career, your, the career that you've had in the Canadian Football League? What's the one thing you want people to remember above all else? Oh, that's a that's a great question. You know, um, you know, I remember when I was playing, and people were always asking me, "Do you, do you realize what you're accomplishing right now?" I said, "No. I, I, when I retire, I want to sit back and and really let everything sink in." And you know, and then for me, now that I've been out for you know five six years. Um, you know, I just want people to think about, you know, how consistent I was. People don't realize how hard it is to be consistent. The the work that goes into it mentally, physically, uh, uh, dealing with everything that you have to deal with. And that's very challenging. But I think that's what separates, you know, average quarterbacks from great quarterbacks, uh, the ones that could do it year in and year out. So, uh, you know, for me, just speaking out loud, I just want people to realize that uh, this was hard work. Um, you know, uh, you know, they saw the end result on game day, but all these little things that were that were that was taking place, not only for myself, but for all our teammates and the whole entire organization. What we did during that time, you know, in that decade, was hard, and it might have looked easy because we were winning, but we took a lot of pride of getting ourselves ready week in and week out. And, 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 and that's the one thing that stands out for me and is, yeah, you could, uh, you could be great, but how great can you be for how many years? It takes a lot of hard work. And, uh, I just want people to realize that, uh, it's not easy doing the things that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that we did for so many years. Well, I can say, Anthony, we, we really appreciate your time. Obviously, thank your family for giving us this extended period of time to, uh, during, uh, during this time tonight. Um, but I can say, I just want to at least let you know, is that uh, I was I am proud to say that I was a season ticket holder the entire time that you were with the Alouettes. Mm. And um, I am very proud of what you did for the city and what you did for the team. And uh, as far as me when it comes to football, I appreciated everything you did. And uh, uh, I thank you quite a bit. No, I, I appreciate that. Like, like you know, living here in the city and just you know, hearing feedback from yourself or from anybody that I run into, and you know, they talk about so many different things. Whether it was what I've done for the community or, you know, the the, the games that we won, the games that we lost, but it always comes back to what I hear a lot is how is you know, what's your health like? What is your wealth, your wife's health like? And 
And to me, that's just so important that, yeah, we were, I was an athlete, but, you know, we are human beings as well. And people have, you know, responded with their kindness of just asking us about our house. So I know that, you know, I have an, I've had an impact here on people and we create a great memory. So it's always great to hear feedback like that because it just seems that, you know, that, you know, what I'm doing and what our family's doing is, is the right thing. Well, I... As I mentioned in the intro, it is one of those things where you just completely lose track of time. And one of the things you did not hear <laughs> it, during the interview itself is, is AC was asking us, um, you, you know, he actually he got a text during the interview and it's like he was a lost person. You know, <laughs> his family was wondering, you know, like, where are you? Um, we appreciate the time that Anthony gave to us and, and we could have gone on for forever, as you mentioned, just at the end of the interview itself. So um, we hope to have him back on. But I mean, uh, we got through most of his career. We did learn a lot of things that uh, I, I that obviously I, I, I didn't know about. I'm sure you didn't know about and the fans may not have known about either. But it, it was just a, a pleasure just to have him on the show. Without question. I mean, like like I said, the, the term GOAT, greatest of all time, gets thrown around so much these days. But, I mean, really, truly, you take a look at his career. You take a look at everything he has done, not just in the CFL, but for the city of Montreal. And, yeah, I, I think the term GOAT definitely applies to Anthony Calvillo. I mean, he, he was our quarterback. He was the one who brought the city not one, not two, but three Grey Cup championships. And, and a lot I of mean, memories. A lot of memories. Oh, my gosh. So many memories. And... You know, again, we, we cannot thank him enough for joining us to, you know, just to deal with these crazy times because normally he'd be getting ready for the next U sports season for the for the Caribbean. Yeah. And instead, he's spending time with the family, which is great. But I mean, like we're all sort of in this uh, this crazy situation right now. And, you know, the, the fact that he was able to take some time out for us and, and, you know, just sit and chat about the good old days and that. I mean, it it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. And we cannot thank him enough for being a part of this and like you I, I hope we can have him back on talk a little bit more just cover some of the stuff that we didn't quite get around to yeah. this time and yeah I, I, it was it was definitely a privilege to be able to talk to anthony calvio i i agree um it, you know not only was he a good player but he seems to be a good human being from what we've seen just from the conversation that we had tonight and a good family man because it's um you know he's had one he had one hell of a career and he and still his football career is still alive so um, uh, if you want to uh, check out any of the former episodes or previous episodes of the Flight Deck, you can do so by checking out our archive over at alouettesflightdeck.ca. And there are, are, are multiple other uh, podcast providers where you can catch uh, our all of our episodes currently on the net. So, uh, But Cliff, uh, appreciate you being here, buddy. I hope you yourself stay safe and healthy. And... Uh, uh, we will, we will talk. I will talk to you soon. But so for everybody here at the flight deck for Cliffy, I'm Tim Capper. Run final approach. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF pod network on Twitter.